You're listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, I've been away for a couple of weeks, sunning myself on various Greek islands, but now I'm back uh, to bring you the latest polling and politics news and analysis from Westminster and beyond. And on this week's show, I'm going to be focusing on one of the events that took place um, in my absence, which was the referendum in Ireland on repealing the Eighth Amendment. As we all know by now, um, the Irish people voted by an approximately two to one margin to repeal the Eighth Amendment. And that means now that um, Ireland's abortion laws were, will significantly change. Indeed, um, abortion will be uh, properly legal uh, in the Republic of Ireland uh, as soon as the Irish Parliament gets around to legislating um, for that fact. So I wanted to look back at that referendum and sort of understand some of the dynamics at play uh, and what will happen in Ireland uh, in the future and what this whole process tells us about Irish politics and uh, the views of Irish society and how they've changed over time. So on this week's podcast, I was joined by Naomi O'Leary, who's host of the Irish Passport podcast and also uh, a journalist. And I wanted to get her perspective on, on some of the events uh, around that referendum. More on that um, in, in a moment. Um, later on the show, and probably the bulk of this podcast in terms of length, um, length of discussion, um, I spoke to Dr. Kevin Cunningham also on some of the issues um, around the um, Irish referendum. But we also talked a bit about Northern Ireland too, and some of his more recent analysis uh, conducted uh, alongside Ian Warren uh, of Election Data and others on Brexit and on the presence of leave and remain voters in different constituencies, what that means for Labour and the Conservatives. And we also talked about a host of other issues around uh, his work on Brexit too. So uh, a bumper and, and fully packed uh, episode, which uh, we'll get on with um, without further ado. Um, the first 10 minutes or so of the podcast will be my conversation um, with Naomi O'Leary. Um, now, the audio quality on the first sort of couple of minutes of our conversation isn't the best, uh, unfortunately, uh, but do stick with it because it's a, a great conversation and Naomi does give um, some really useful insight uh, into what's going on in the Republic of Ireland and you know how that place is how that place is changing. So um, you know do do stick with it, but um, the audio is not the best, unfortunately. Um, slightly different with Kevin, um, different setup on the audio there, so that's that's much better. But um, with that in mind, um, here is the conversation uh, between myself and Naomi O'Leary earlier this week, uh, and I started off by asking Naomi um, what the uh, referendum result told us about Ireland in 2018. So, I, so I'm here with Naomi O'Leary. Um, Naomi, now that the now that the dust has settled, so to speak, on the referendum result, I mean, what do you think it tells us about Ireland in 2018? There's a couple of really interesting uh, things that this is revealed about Ireland. So, to begin with, it shows that the public is more progressive than the politicians that represent them. The vote of uh, which returned near 70 percent in favour of repeal is um, very step with the uh, Iraqis representation was much, much smaller uh, percentage in favour of appeal. There were constituencies which had no political representatives at all which were campaigning for for appeal. Um, they only had some on the no side. And those constituencies returned yes votes in large parties. So it shows that it revealed the political class to be a bit out of step on this issue. Uh, the other thing that it, I think it shows is that the sort of cliche about Ireland that it's a conservative Catholic country um, is can't really hold anymore. I mean, this is a resounding victory uh, on a social issue that is one of the most divisive in the world. 
And it's the second time that we've seen this happen now. We had the first vote of this kind in 2015 when Ireland became the first country in the world to legalise same-sex marriage by popular ballot. And we've seen a repeat of a big win uh, for progressive issues on an even bigger majority this time around. So it's very much a break with the past. That was one of the things that struck me. I mean, um, people that know me will know I have uh, Irish grandparents. I've always I've always associated um, Ireland with being very much in in lockstep one way or the other with the Catholic Church, either in, so intentionally or otherwise. I mean, did, has the pace of change in Ireland surprised you? I mean, I guess as an outsider, it looks like things. There's almost like a dam's burst, but maybe you, maybe you have a different perspective. I think your image is probably correct in regard to the Ireland of your grandparents. I know a lot of people who um, left generations earlier carry perhaps an image of Ireland that isn't uh, like match what Ireland is today. So Ireland has transformed very rapidly. You can really trace it to um, about, let's say, the 1970s and when Ireland uh, joined the EEC. It transformed economically quite quickly after that, and we obviously had the Celtic tiger, tiger boom. And in tandem with that, there was a very rapid pace of social change. So Ireland became a relatively wealthy country. I think it's great from its past, it had always been poor. Uh, it became a more diverse place, and very quickly um, the Catholic Church began to lose its hold, and this was helped by... Uh, a series of scandals over abuse of children, not just children, but systematic abuse in institutions like industrial schools and stainless maximum laundries. They really struck at the heart of the credibility of the Catholic Church in Ireland. And what we've seen is, was described by uh, T.C. as a quiet revolution. And I, I think that's a good description. And it, I guess the, the next question becomes... Are, are there other areas of Catholic doctrine that you think people, or, or, or I don't know, other influences that the Catholic Church has over Ireland that people will look to challenge now? I mean, I'm struggling to see beyond um, same-sex marriage and, uh, and and abortion sort of what would be as controversial, but presumably there are other areas of the Church's influence over Irish life that people are looking to, to change, maybe? Yeah, I mean, immediately after the same-sex marriage vote, um, the question was, what next? And the answer to that was simple, because it was the movie 8. Um, this round, the same question came up, what next? But there isn't as simple as an answer. There have been a couple of different suggestions. One is to remove uh, the little bit of the Constitution that describes the woman's place as being in the home. That would be highly symbolic, but it wouldn't have the big policy implications of the other two votes. Uh, there also were immediate cries to remove the influence um, of the Catholic Church in schooling uh, and in healthcare, which is significant. So something in the order of 90% of Irish primary schools are Catholic-run. Um, now, that's a legacy of the very big role that the Catholic Church took up in the early days of the state when Ireland was a poor place um, that you know, couldn't couldn't provide these services and the Catholic Church took took the role. And the Catholic Church still has a very overweening influence in education and healthcare that clearly doesn't reflect the nation that has emerged. So there is a lot of impetus to reform the health system uh, to get things like hospitals out of religious ownership and the same with schools, of course. 
uh, roughly 90% of Irish primary schools Catholic run. Uh, so there are some steps towards that. For example, uh, there's, um, the process is underway to end the baptism barrier, which basically allows schools to designate in favour of those uh, who baptise their children as Catholics. Uh, that's been got rid of. So that equalizes access to uh, children who might not have a, a religious affiliation or who might have a different one. Um, but the, the process of um, moving to a secular education system and a secular health system is very complicated. Um, it, it's, uh, these, there are very deeply embedded institutions um, that it isn't something that can be changed with a vote. Uh, it would be a case of changing the ownership of all of Ireland's schools and hospitals and it to be the work of lifetime uh, rather than years. I want to move on to talk a bit about um, sort of the, the wider mm-hmm. Irish political um, sort of world, if you like, at the moment. Um, obviously, we can't get too far away from Brexit. It seems to dominate things, at least over in Britain. Um, I mean, what, what's your your take on the? I mean, obviously, as we, as we come out of the um, repeal the eighth vote, I mean, what's the lay of the land politically in Dublin? Would you say? I mean, is Leo Varadkar stronger? Um, where does the Irish, and probably related to that, you know, where where do you think the Irish government stands on Brexit at the moment? Because of course, there's lots of issues around the border um, between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, but then at the same time, um, a very close trading relationship with between the Republic of Ireland and Britain too. So, it feels like uh, Dublin's kind of caught in a bit of a catch-22 situation. Well, I'll start with the first part of that question for, in terms of the political impact of the repeal vote. So, the victory for the government does strengthen Leo Varadkar, um, but more than being a big win for him, it's more like losing it would have been terrible for him. So, um, he is bolstered. He's not bolstered too much. Michael um, Martin, the leader of Fianna Fáil, is bolstered because he took a political risk by backing repeal when he didn't have the support of the majority of his party. Um, and that paid off for him. So he is strengthened. And again, if he if that had turned out to be the wrong decision for him, uh, his leadership would probably be over. Um, so um, they are looking stronger. Um, but the payoff, the political payoff, is very uncertain in terms of whether it will translate into votes in the next election because it's a very different issue. Um, now, about 125,000 people registered last minute to vote in this election, so there was a massive mobilising effect. And a big question will be whether those people turn up to vote in elections and whether they and how they'll vote, whether it will be substantially different to what came before. Um, it's not clear that there will be a big difference made to the support of different parties. It's not clear how it translates. But I would note that the figure of Mary Lou Macdonald, the president of Sinn Féin, has been transformed by her role in this campaign. So um, Sinn Féin would have been seen as a bit of a single-issue party, very associated with nationalism and you know the desire to have a united Ireland. Uh, Mary Lou Macdonald uh, had a really spectacular performance um, politically during this campaign, he, she really owned the issue. She was a very good debater. She came very well, and been transformed in the eyes of many people. And where there's her party, this was kind of the perfect issue for them to move away from the presidency of Gerry Adams, which was very much dogged by the past, the violent past of um, IRA and and links with that group. And this is a very um, this is very much a new image for Sinn Féin. 
So it will be very interesting to see whether they have a, a political payoff from that. In terms of Brexit, um, I mean, what to say about it? There's there's a political impasse. Ireland is, you know, has set out its stall for a long time now. It's not going to accept any deal that creates or hardens the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. It's up to the UK to come up with a proposal that avoids it. Um, none has been put forth so far. At this point, the thing that is uh, alarming Dublin and many other EU states is the lack of a solution being put forward. This is the prospect of a kind of a car crash, no deal Brexit, which would be completely disastrous for the island of Ireland, for Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and nobody wants it. Um, you know, the time is very short to come up with a proposal to avoid it. And how concerned do you think we what, should be what about what? what uh, <laughs> well, it seems like we're all waiting for the government to make a make a decision on what they want here. Um, yeah. How? How concerned would you be about the peace process in the north as well? I mean, I mean, we we look at a situation where there's no there's no executive at the moment. Um, you know, the DUP are obviously very important to the government in Westminster's uh, political survival. I mean, should we be worried about where the peace process goes from here? Do you think Northern Ireland has been massively failed by politicians in Westminster and also its own area? The, the impact of, that Brexit had on Northern Ireland was hardly discussed in the campaign um, that led up to the Brexit referendum, uh, even though it would be the most impacted by the vote. Some people seem to have forgotten that a war existed at all. It's been treated with the most extraordinary carelessness. Uh, that's all the more shocking because of the vulnerability of this particular part of the world. It's in a, it's in a, a, a vulnerable post-conflict one of the most deprived areas of Europe. Um, it doesn't need this, it needs stability, and Northern Ireland didn't vote for Brexit either. So, um, in terms of a return to violence, nobody should be complacent about it, I would say. Uh, I mean, paramilitaries still exist there, they're still active, they still recruit, and they obviously don't have the power that they once had, but uh, they, you know, mm. I, I don't see there's no there's no one should treat it lightly, um, and um, yeah, that's that's what I would say. Naomi O'Leary, thank you very much for your time. That was Naomi O'Leary there. A big thanks to Naomi for joining me on this week's podcast and giving um, her impressions and and her perspective on recent events in Ireland. Hopefully, the sound quality wasn't too much of a, a struggle for you. I think it sort of improved as we went on. It's always a, a challenge, really, with these sorts of situations. Um, you, know, you have to decide whether you want to persist with it or not. I, I thought that Naomi gave several really good contributions there um, to and, and some really good insights into what was going on. So I wanted to make sure those were included on this week's episode. And the, the quality did seem to improve as we went on a bit. So um, hopefully that was... Uh, um, worth uh, worth uh, sort of pursuing. Um, a few points I want to pick up on what Naomi mentioned. Um, I think one of the things that really strikes me is just how much Ireland has changed as a country in a reasonably uh, short period of time, sort of the last couple of decades, and the sort of waning influence of the of the Catholic Church. But then one of the points that Naomi also uh, mentioned is that how the, the Catholic Church still has a huge role to play in Irish life on, on in issues around education and health. So it hasn't vanished. It hasn't gone away. 
but I think um, the, the idea that now it's going to be the uh, you know the, the soul of Ireland, if you like, in terms of um, issues of uh, sort of social issues, uh, does seem to does seem to have gone away. I was also struck by what Naomi mentioned about Mary Lou Macdonald, uh, the president of Sinn Féin. Um, this is something I'm fascinated by, how Sinn Féin sort of um, manages its reputation in a sort of post-Jerry Adams and post-Martin McGuinness era, and what influence, if any, that might have uh, on, on, on sort of perceptions around a united Ireland over there. Um, we often talk about um, sort of per, uh, perceptions of a united Ireland in, in Northern Ireland, which is obviously, uh, which is for obvious reasons, but I am interested in uh, perceptions south of the border too. And that's something that I'm going to come to in a moment uh, on the second uh, part of the podcast with uh, with Kevin Cunningham. Um, and I think finally, you know, on 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 Brexit, it's worth uh, remembering um, if we if we could ever forget that the Republic of Ireland is obviously going to play a really significant part in the um, eventual Brexit deal that is done because you know they have an effective veto there. Um, and there's a lot of discussion going on at Westminster, of course, about backstops and. Uh, you know, hard borders and things, and um, I'll, I'll talk a bit about those later on in the podcast. But it's also you know, very important to remember that the Republic of Ireland will have a view on that too. Uh, and Anglo-Irish relations uh, in the next few years are going to be extremely important, um, as they often are, of course, uh, in the history of the two places, but um, certainly in the short term, going to be very, very important uh, indeed. So what, thanks once again to Naomi O'Leary for, uh, for joining us on this week's podcast. Um, ho- hopefully we'll have her on again in the future um, to, to sort of follow up on some of these issues. Um, the next part of the podcast is going to be um, about sort of 20, 25 minutes of a conversation I had um, this week with uh, Dr. Kevin Cunningham. Now, uh, Kevin is a sort of uh, expert on sort of political analysis, works a lot with Ian Warren uh, elections data. He's also uh, founder of the polling company um, Ireland Thinks um, and is definitely worth uh, a follow on Twitter for analysis around Yes, Irish politics, but also uh, politics in, in some Britain as well. And both of those things uh, were discussed on our conversation on, on this week's episode. So we started off by talking about some of the issues that um, uh, I, I covered with Naomi. So looking back at the um, the referendum in Ireland again, and also the sort of political consequences of that. But we also spent a bit of time talking about Northern Ireland too, uh, and uh, had a really interesting discussion about um, uh, what, what people in the Republic of Ireland think about a united Ireland. Um, Kevin talks about some of his polling on that and then we moved on to looking at some of his analysis um, recently over uh, sort of leave and remain voters in Britain and what that means for the Labour Party and the Conservative Party potentially uh, in the future so really fascinating discussion was delighted to be joined by Kevin and here is that conversation. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Kevin Cunningham. Uh, Kevin welcome to Polling Matters. Thanks Karen. well uh, delighted to be here. Um, I've just been talking to Naomi O'Leary, um, Irish journalist, about the um, the recent referendum there, which I know you've been looking at in detail. Um, one of the things that struck me uh, from her analysis was that, you know, the result seems to show a real pace of change in Ireland in terms of the sort of attitudes to social issues and moving away maybe from the Catholic Church. I mean, is that something that you recognise? Is that something that you sh- uh, an an- analysis that you share? Yeah, that, that that's certainly true. Um, in after every election, we've had this sort of standard question of, of people's positions on abortion. And that actually hasn't really changed that much in since uh, 2016, since the recent general election. So um, there's been quite a substantial change. The, the result itself uh, was probably quite surprising because um, the numbers of people that voted in favour of this change, which is quite a substantial change, to be honest, 
and um, compared to say the even quite surprisingly uh, large yes vote in favour of marriage equality uh, is is quite interesting. You know the fact that more people were in favour of this compared to uh, the marriage equality uh, referendum. Now I put a lot of that down to differential turnout, and so in some cases um, I was doing a bit of polling on the day and a bit of polling in the lead up to it. And um, the thing I'm usually obsessed with is is turnout and differential turnout and whether one side just wants it more than the other. Um, and in this case, there was increasing evidence that the no side was starting to disengage as it got closer and closer to the result. And I think part of the magnitude of the difference between yes and no was down to the fact that the yes side was more enthusiastically going out and voting in favour of it, and the no side was starting to disengage. And that's perhaps explained some of that difference between the, the magnitude of the yes vote or the magnitude of the no vote, let's say, in the marriage equality referendum compared to the magnitude of the no vote in the abortion referendum. Why do you think the no, sorry to interrupt, why do you think the no yeah. vote would disengage then? Because I, I would have thought of all the issues you could possibly have a referendum on, this would be one of the most emotive, right? And the most likely to drive either side to the polls, but clearly not. Yeah, I, I mean, look, turnout was big, but turnout was still lower than that of the general election. So it, it was it was a very big turnout for for any referendum, but I guess some of the no voters may have, may have stayed at home on account of the fact they probably weren't represented in the public space by anyone from the mainstream. Maybe there weren't any newspapers or any political parties, apart from Renewa, who don't have any uh, TDs, they don't have any representatives in, in Parliament, uh, who, who were kind of advocating a no stance. So. I, 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 I don't know. Uh, I, I think that might be part of it. Uh, certainly it was would have been trendier to vote yes. Um, and, and I, I Maybe guess they thought the result was inevitable it, as well, perhaps. Yeah, and, and if I guess if you're losing, right, if, if you're losing the marriage equality referendum and you know you're going to lose this, then maybe psychologically you just, you just disengage from the entire process. You know, you see lots of no people saying on, online on Twitter, and this is obviously you know, uh, just just what people are saying, but how they're how they're disengaging entirely from the country and saying Ireland's not my country anymore, blah blah blah. Um, obviously, because it's now this new Ireland and and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, perhaps to this kind of the extent to which um, those that are more associated with the Catholic Church and, and religion um, have taken such a beating that they're disengaging, basically. And and that's I'm, I'm just talking about around the edges and. And why why uh, the the yes side was higher for this one than it was for marriage equality, which one would have thought would have been higher, I guess. And it does it does seem like there's been like like we sort of mentioned in the intros, huge social change in Ireland, right? I mean, I was talking to Naomi O'Leary about this. I mean, um, both of my grandmothers are, are Irish, and Ireland mm. seems to have changed a lot in terms of its relationship with the Catholic Church, right? I mean, that that seems to be one thing we can safely say I mean what, what do you think's driven that just a general move away from religion or is there something specific in Ireland do you think ah uh, yeah I'd say it's both I'd say there's two things there's a general movement away from religion as there is in any country but also there's there's a an, an anti-clericalism aspect to it as well following you know a series of scandals I guess if you if you go back the Irish state itself wasn't very big and, and the Catholic Church basically took the role of the state um, historically speaking, and obviously you've got a series of 
um, massive scandals that have just been broken uh, almost every year. You know, you have the clerical abuse scandals, you've the Magdalene laundries. Um, there's there's lots and lots of them, and just mm. lots of people are affected by these things directly. Lots of people who know people who are affected by these uh, these scandals directly, and that particular aspect I think is driving uh, uh, some of some of a particular surge against uh, the church now. But but there's obviously you know a, a general kind of modernization let's let's say as well in terms of uh, the country becoming less religious. Now if you go to the exit poll, people still identify as being Catholic, but the big difference in terms of how they're voting was whether they were regularly attending church or mm -hmm. not. Yeah. So if, if they weren't, obviously. They were so it's like voting. Catholic Catholic at christenings and weddings, but maybe maybe not in between in some cases. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the people that were attending regularly were all pretty much voting uh, no. Yeah. And, uh, no one else voted yes, pretty much. I mean, what do we think about the um, the political fallout um, from this in Ireland? I mean, one of the things that we've seen in, in, in Scotland and in England and the UK, I guess, more generally, referendums often can have this really um, mobilising impact on politics long beyond the vote itself. I mean, do you see that happening in Ireland? I mean, are there other areas where... Um, campaigners that um, campaigned on, on so strongly for yes feel like they need to take the battle now from here. Yeah, you know it's funny, like because I've been involved in referendums on both sides of the Irish Sea, and it's 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 weird how it has been different. You see, I remember it, my expectation of the fallout of other referendums in, in the UK was different to was different from what happened here because we had a lot of referendums here that you know. The, the strength of feeling around the issues would be huge up to the referendum. The vote would happen, and then people would just get on with it after, mm. right? And that clearly hasn't happened in the UK. I think, to some extent, people are calling on, on, on that no side to say that the fight doesn't stop here. But I I think the probably fight probably has, broadly speaking, stopped there in that particular issue. In terms of the the, the political repercussions of it, the exit poll reveals that the political party that have benefited most from this is, is Fianna Gael. So in spite of maybe the Labour Party being at the forefront of um, social change issues and, and driving them from day one, the Labour Party was the only party that opposed the 1983 uh, amendment in the first place, it's actually Fine Gael that is benefiting. So the centre-right governing party is benefiting mm -hmm. the most from this and, and Labour are, are down at 5% in that exit poll. And, and for the and benefit of listeners, that's the, that, that, like you say, that's the governing party, that's the party of the TSOC, uh, Leo Varadkar, right? Yeah, of Leo Varadkar. And Leo Varadkar himself has, benefit, has benefited quite substantially. Probably a couple of individuals, the, the current Minister for Health has benefited enormously as well uh, from the popularity of the whole thing as well. Um, um, it's it's probably damaged the, one of the opposition parties, Fianna Fáil. Uh, people thought Sinn Féin were going to do very well out of it because uh, Mary Lou Macdonald, their new leader, is um, uh, performed quite well uh, publicly, um, and uh, her posters, poster, posters of her face were were all around the country associated with the yes vote. Um, but in the exit poll, her her figures were basically just as a, just as you'd expect in any ordinary. So um, she hasn't actually lifted them up uh, beyond uh, the support that they had during Jerry Adams. So that's quite interesting. There's a real expectation, and I certainly thought it was going to happen oh, repeatedly, but uh, it, 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 the, the Sinn Féin surge hasn't happened yet. And 
I don't know, it's probably just the, the economy is going too well for, for Sinn Féin mm. to, to do well. Well. It's, it's interesting you bring up Sinn Féin. I mean, it makes me think of uh, Northern Ireland. I mean, there's what do you think about the implications here um, on abortion, but generally on um, what, what attitudes maybe north of the border on on um, on, on Irish un- unity? I mean, it's something that keeps sort of flaring up as a um, potential issue related to the Brexit uh, debate in Westminster, doesn't it? I mean, both in terms of the DUP's opposition to a, uh, a referendum on abortion in Northern Ireland and the debate about whether that's a human rights issue or a devolved issue. But then also this this whole idea of customs unions and whether... Northern Ireland could genuinely ever leave the UK. I mean, where, where, what's your analysis on some of those uh, some of those uh, issues? I mean, two very different things, I suppose. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess in relation to uh, the issue of abortion, I mean, some people will probably uh, seek to campaign and seek to change it, and I think there's probably a real momentum behind changing uh, the abortion laws in Northern Ireland. Uh, whether anything will happen up there, I don't know. Um, uh, I would be wary a little bit of um any people down south moving and trying to manipulate uh, laws and legislation that happens in Northern Ireland, as well anyone from Westminster trying to do so, fully cognizant of the fact that that doesn't go very well if we try to force mm-hmm. Northern Ireland to do what it, what it wants to do. Um, in relation to attitudes towards a uh, united Ireland, uh, I did do a poll I've done two polls on this down here about um, in, in the south of Ireland about um, whether people wanted a united Ireland, uh, accounting for the costs, uh, the immediate costs of doing so of approximately nine billion per year, um, and I saw a massive shift uh, over the course of the last year from the start of 2017 to the end of 2017 um, in relation to a, a quite a substantial increase in support. Uh, for doing so. So what uh, sort of levels of support would that be if, if you're talking yeah, about? It was, it, was, it was at 50-50, right? So this is accounting for this 9 billion cost per annum. So 50% were in favour of it and 50% against. And then it moved to basically 66-33. Uh, so it moved 50-50 to 2-1. to one. So it was it was quite a substantial change. Um, uh, I've, there's also evidence from the Lucid Talk polls um, in relation to changing sentiment around and in the context of Brexit towards a United Ireland in the north. And I think a lot of that is down to the fact that demographically Northern Ireland is split pretty much, you're talking about uh, 50% uh, unionist, 45% nationalist, and then 5% in between, basically, and uh, or, or Catholic community versus uh, Protestant community, let's say. Um, but has, in recent years, the kind of Catholic side Half of those guys just want the status quo because they don't want to return to any troubles. But essentially, by introducing a border and changing the relationship between Northern Ireland and the south of Ireland in terms of leaving the European Union, that seems to uh, galvanise that Catholic community to raise their their uh, demands for a United Ireland. And that's that's I guess what what the biggest outcome is there. You know, there are obviously some. Be some particularly younger people who would have voted Remain in Northern Ireland, who would be typically from a Protestant community, who are now in favour of a United Ireland, but they're relatively small numbers. The bigger change is probably among the kind of Catholic community, which are kind of staring down the barrel of, of a border, because a lot of them are live in Derry and live in Newry, and uh, this really changes things for them mm. uh, in Ireland. 
it changes their everyday lives, doesn't it? Sorry, go on. It changes their everyday lives, their identity, the whole lot. And they're actually much more affluent, much wealthier than they were if you go back 20 or 30 years. So I think that they're less of a danger in terms of um, uh, any sort of violence than perhaps uh, the loyalist communities in East Belfast um, who economically are um, struggling uh, a lot more in relative terms and certainly sectarian violence has increased in those areas um, relative to the areas around the border. So the border will probably change everything but in terms of Northern Ireland there's, there's, a, there's a worry as well about the loyalist communities in, in all this and how this is actually going to play out. Um, so that's why, that's why I often think of people going up north trying to change um, the laws up there, uh, the loyalist communities are do certainly feel um, uh, like they're under siege in relation to all this sort of stuff. And we've seen in the past that past you know, Sunningdale Agreement in the 70s that you know, the, the loyalist community there has brought down uh, peace efforts in, in, in the past, you know, way back in the 70s. So I suppose it's a, it's interesting, actually, that a lot of the analysis gets um, placed on what Republican communities want or feel, but maybe there's not as much analysis that looks at um, loyalists. Um, let's, let's think about the, the, the UK generally. I mean, I know you've done a lot of work on, um, on Brexit and uh, the presence of Leave and Remain voters in different UK constituencies. Um, I mean, now we've got you, it'd be good to get your sort of perspective on what your work has taught you about the Brexit process and maybe the current lay of the land politically in Westminster. Yeah, I mean... Big, um, big yeah, question, so, I know, but, you know, humorous. Yeah, we, we, we did, well, my, myself um, and uh, Ian Warren um, did the uh, MRP model to, to, to work out, you know, what, what, what the breakdown of Leave and Remain is among... Uh, within each political party, within each constituency. So, for example, what way did Broxtow Labour voters go? What percentage of Broxtow Labour was Leave and Remain and so on? And it's important to try to understand those numbers in order to determine, well, where did the, um, how did we end up with such a result in 2017 in the general election compared to what happened in 2016? We know a lot of the Labour heartlands uh, voted to leave, but how did they end up voting for these Labour candidates in the end. I mean, there were a lot of Labour candidates who were really worried about losing um, these uh, Labour strongholds, and then it didn't quite happen. So it was really trying to disentangle what actually happened there. And a lot of it is in uh, non-voters. So a lot of people who voted in the referendum didn't vote in that general election. And then a lot of people who voted um, in the general election but didn't vote in the referendum actually voted for the Labour Party. So the Labour actually benefited from this this change of this difference between people that didn't vote in the referendum and people that, that did and then suddenly decided not to. Labour leave voters that kind of stayed at home and then a lot of people who would have voted remain in the referendum had they voted basically came out, excuse me, and voted uh, for Labour in the general election. So that means that to some extent these constituencies aren't as strongly leave as they may have perceived to have been. So in terms of the general election result, and a lot of kind of Remainers turned out, or a lot of people who would have voted Remain had there been an election, uh, turned out and voted uh, Labour. So that it, it changes how we understand that particular, the size of that kind of Labour leave vote um, in terms of the Labour heartlands. Mm. And that's kind of one of the main things, really. I mean, it, in, in some cases, it doesn't, uh, there's no point shying away from the, the serious problems that, that are in constituencies such as Ashfield. We understand that there's 16,000 conservative 
leave voters that are going nowhere. They're very unlikely to go back to the Labour Party at this point. So it means that uh, the MP in that particular constituency has a serious fight because they have pretty much an even balance of Labour leavers and Labour remainers, and it's very difficult in those constituencies. But that's probably at the at the sharpest end of of the issue. It's, there's, it's there's... an interesting question, though, isn't it? Because I mean, I, I wrestle with this a lot because the the natural conclusion to draw from your analysis and Ian Warren from election data, who I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this will will follow as well, um, would be that Labour could afford to have a much more solidly pro-European position. I guess people can disagree on what that position should be, and they're not there aren't necessarily electoral consequences of that. But then. In your in your view, how much are the Leave and Remain voters? Uh, how much is the fact that people voted Leave or Remain actually motivating them in one way or another? I guess I wonder, as politics moves on and Brexit seems to be happening, yes, people did vote Leave or Remain, but is that is that actually motivating them, or is it other things? Yeah, I, I I think that's the key point, really. I think this data is probably more of a starting point, and I actually don't think on its own this data suggests oh, the Labour Party should go one way or the Labour Party should go another. Um, it's, it's definitely unclear. I think a further piece of analysis on actually what are the motivations of that small number, because bear in mind the Labour Leave vote does uh, hold the balance of power in, in loads of constituencies, as does the Conservative Remain vote as well. Um, uh, so what, what direction the Labour Party goes on is dependent on how these people um, viewed other issues. Now, we know some information when we in the British election study, which uh, I, I believe uh, GFK were, were uh, a huge part of, yep. um, it asked people uh, what they thought was the most important issue. And it was clear in that particular um, uh, election study that the Conservative leavers and the Conservative remainers and the Labour remainers were all, all focused on Brexit as an issue, whereas the Labour leavers we're much more likely to focus on issues like health and education and other sort of politics. And I guess that's why they voted Labour in the first place. They may have voted Leave, but I guess there are other issues that are very important. So perhaps any strategy that Labour has in relation to uh, Brexit has to also come with it another strategy to actually deal with the serious problems that are in these areas of, of, of serious decline. Yeah. You know, kind of you're talking the small towns and uh, Areas that are in considerable decline. I mean, the the the, the talk, uh, recent discussions about uh, transport and infrastructure and buses and all this sort of stuff. That's entirely relevant, really, to the to the Brexit discussion. I mean, and I can see how nationalisation of the rail, and um, is actually something that that you know, although it's quite difficult to understand exactly how it will play out, but that's something that can potentially somehow feed into. And um, these issues in these areas, I guess. Well, at least on at least at a superficial level, it is taking back yeah. control, isn't it? You know, um, you mentioned in 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 the final kind of couple of minutes. I mean, you mentioned in uh, in, in your analysis there that about conservative remainers, and I know Ian's uh, mentioned a lot that you know, these this is a group that's often not analysed, not understood. I mean, what, what's your what's your perspective on them? It seems like actually, if they were to go, if they were to shift in some significant way, that could be a real problem for the Conservative Party, couldn't it? Yeah, and, and like that is a group that does care about the issue and um, is, I guess, on the wrong side. So perhaps there's a potential. The, the only problem is a lot of them are in constituencies that are just unobtainable for the Labour Party. A lot of them are in the south. Now, there are some constituencies like Pudsey for which there are lots of Labour, uh, 
Tory Remainers and there's a very small majority. So there's some constituencies dotted around the country that are easily targetable, particularly those in Scotland, for obvious reasons, because you have the Labour Party and the SNP splitting the Remain vote, um, where uh, they could very easily uh, remove the uh, Tory majorities in those constituencies. Of course, the, the, the Tory um, uh, the Tory MPs in Scotland are particularly strong uh, leavers, so that they're probably unlikely to change their position. They'll just lose their seats, probably. And I guess final word. I don't know how much I don't know how much you look at Scotland, but Scotland's going to be fascinating, isn't it, in the future? Because one of the things that I mean, I, I've been a sort of uh, curious about, particularly after the local elections. Um, where everyone was focusing on England and Wales, obviously, because that's where the local elections were and what that meant for Westminster. There's not a lot of analysis on Scotland, and it's changed so much so quickly in such a short space of time, hasn't it? That It feels like um, Scotland could easily uh, hold the balance of power at the next general election, whether it's because the SNP have a certain number of seats, whether it's because Labour takes seats off the Conservatives, where, you know, can Ruth Davidson keep the, the Tories in power like she did last time? Um, that's going to be a really important area for poll watchers to keep an eye on, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, there's, the last election was probably one of the most surprising. And I've done some small polls in Scotland. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn is very popular up there. And uh, I think that's something that's uh, quite missing. In fact, he's quite popular in Northern Ireland as well. So uh, I think it's just his... Certain parts, you'd have thought, right? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but um, un un undoubtedly, uh, I, I think it was one of the things that wasn't expected was that change in the last general election in Scotland. And, look, you know, we had this massive uh, turnout in that referendum and, and the SNP have probably just... Are, they're probably just going to decline a little bit over time. It's, I guess they depend on their relevance and uh, in the context of something as, as big as Brexit, perhaps their um, their relevance isn't as strong. But, uh, something to keep an eye on in the future. And Dr. Kevin yeah. Cunningham, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you. That was Dr. Kevin Cunningham. A big thanks to Kevin for joining me on this week's podcast. Um, a few uh, really interesting points raised in that discussion, which I think have wider implications, um, not only for what we were talking about today, but just generally as, as us poll watchers um, look at the political scene. Um, this idea of differential turnout in the um, Irish referendum struck me. Um, we often talk about swing voters and, uh, you know, how, in the context of the Brexit debate in Britain, you know, will leave voters change their mind and so on. But I suppose another way of looking at all of these things, whether it's Brexit or whether it's a, a general election in the future, is, you know, how motivated are each side to turn out? And that's another interpretation um, that we can apply to politics. And I think it's something that seems to have been relevant in, in the Irish referendum on, on, the, on the Eighth Amendment, um, something to think about in the future. I'm also fascinated by a theme that um, came through in both by discussions with Naomi and Kevin um, related to Ireland, and that's about religion and the sort of declining influence uh, of, of religion and of the Catholic Church. It got me thinking, um, and this is speculation to some extent, but when we look at the question of um, a united Ireland uh, and, and the views of people in Northern Ireland about that, you know, you wonder how changing identities and uh, the changing importance of, of religion might change the framing of that debate uh, in, in the future uh, as we um, have Brexit and, you know, potentially border infrastructure in that area of some kind and that sort of thing. I mean, I suspect old habits die hard, particularly when it comes to um, unionism versus uh, nationalism in, in, in Northern Ireland, that they aren't 
only about religion, of course, are they? So, um, but still, um, reli- uh, you know, identities change, affiliations change, and then they're not fixed forever. Um, and I suppose that's something to be uh, to be wary of uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, I was also struck by um, Kevin's discussion around Labour leavers. Um, one of the things that I, I asked Kevin about, and you'll detect my sort of uh, maybe not scepticism, but just uh, critical eye on, is this idea of just because someone's a Leave voter or a Remain voter, you know, how much is that actually motivating how they see the world? And I was struck by how Kevin pointed out that Labour Leave voters are much more motivated by, or at least at the moment, by other things that aren't about Brexit, such, such as the NHS and public services and so on. And I suppose that, that comes back comes back to the heart of how we look at the Brexit debate. You know, what came first, the chicken and the egg, you know, uh, chicken or the egg? I mean, did people vote leave because they saw the world in a certain way? Or, you know, is is the leave vote the start of an identity? Again, back to that word again, identity, that then shapes how they view politics uh, in, in the future. Um, fascinating stuff. I mean, what's clear is that we still at the moment have a sizable chunk of uh, Labour voters uh, who voted leave and Conservative voters who voted remain. And their commitment to their partisan leanings doesn't seem to have gone away yet. Maybe it will in the future. We'll have to wait and see. Now, the final couple of minutes of this podcast, because we are running out of time, um, we've gone a bit over what we normally do. I'll I'll just touch a bit on the row today with David Davis and Theresa May. Certainly is catching um, the headlines. This is, of course, over this idea of a backstop, again, related to some of the topics we've been talking about today in Northern Ireland. Uh, and, th- and this idea of what happens um, if there is no um, arrangement uh, to avoid a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, you know, what happens? And th- there's all this discussion about a stopgap or, or a backstop or sort of things like that, where um, Britain maintains sort of regulatory alignment. David Davis was uh, keen to time limit that, um, which I guess you can understand to some extent to avoid being uh, staying staying uh, aligned with with the EU uh, forever, at least if you're a Brexiter, that would bother you. Um, and the, the the text that's been agreed is this: the UK is clear that the temporary customs arrangement should be should it be needed, should be time limited, and that it will only be in place until uh, a f- the further customs arrangement can be introduced. The UK is clear that the future customs arrangement needs to deliver on the commitments made in relation to Northern Ireland. The UK expects a future arrangement to be in place by the end of 2020, December 2021, at the latest. There are a range of options for how a time limit could be delivered, which the UK will propose and discuss with the EU. I think, um, obviously, that's diplomatic language. It's been agreed within the Conservative government. Um, I mean, but the, the word that jumps out, jumps out at me is that the UK expects. Well, you know, the UK can expect lots of things, but will they actually happen? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But in watching Westminster obsess over this debate, today it, it struck me that we're talking we're dancing around these issues without actually dealing with the fundamental substance if we take a step back there are two things we need to think about tonight one is that this is the conservative party negotiating with itself again of course no idea what the eu reaction will be and again there seems to be skeptical noises coming out of brussels this evening in response but again there's lots of rhetoric in these negotiations so we should be careful about over interpreting that too um but also that, you know, it doesn't seem to be the case that we, we're dealing with this issue of the border. We're talking about backstops and what happens in the event that nothing's uh, nothing's resolved. There's no further progress on this, uh, on, on a solution. And ultimately, we're in the same place we've been at for a while, aren't we? Which is that the, um, the sort of most committed Brexiters want to leave the customs union. 
but there's no obvious solution for what that means for Northern Ireland. And um, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you think. I don't feel we're any closer to knowing what that solution is. So, I mean, backstops are important, and perhaps more so because it looks like we might need one. Um, but I'm just not seeing what that what that solution is at the moment. And I guess you know you can time limit things as much as you want, but if 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 you are going to come up with a technical solution that's imaginative and all the other words people use, it's going to take time to implement. It's going to take time to agree in the first place. So, you know, expecting that to be resolved by 2021 may very well be wistful thinking, but um, let's see um, what happens. For me, the biggest the biggest issue, which may be obvious, is that by the time 2021 goes around, I, I, suspe- I strongly suspect Theresa May will not be Prime Minister and David Davis will not be Brexit Secretary. So it may be for other people, either on the Conservative or Labour side, um, to see that to its conclusion. But all in good time, I suppose. But that's all we have got time for for this week's Political Betting Polling Matters podcast. As ever, if you like what you hear, please do share us on social media, um, like our Facebook page, give us a positive comment and rating on iTunes and other podcast apps. Really helps get the show's name out there. And if you've got suggestions for future guests or future topics that you'd like the podcast to cover, then do get in touch with myself or Leo Barassi, my fellow podcaster, and let us know. Um, we always are open uh, for suggestions. But for now, that's all we've got time for for this week. And thanks for listening. <laughs>